Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. Just a massive thank you to whoever you are listening to this. Before we start, just to remind you that we do this podcast two, three times a week. But we don't always know which days it's going to be on, so there's only one way to know, and that is to subscribe and get notifications. Why not drop us a review while you're there? Right, enough about that. Let's talk some rugby. Just before we start today's podcast, we've got some exciting and important news to tell you about our podcast. As of now, our podcasts will be hosted on the Global Player app. Now, don't worry, if you listen to us on other platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, that's fine. But we recommend you download the Global Player app to listen to our podcast before it's released on any other player. The Global Player is available to download on iOS and Google stores. Ben James, I'm joined on today's Welsh Rugby Podcast by my colleague, Matt Southcombe. How are you doing, Matt? Yeah, good afternoon, mate. You're all right? Not too bad, not too bad. Good, good. How are you finding lockdown? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit strange, isn't it? But yeah, I think we're used to it now. Um, I'm, I've been sent downstairs to the bedroom for my for my conference calls um, today. My girlfriend's got the living room, so um, yeah, we've got a little rotor system going, um, but we're managing. So yeah, all good. Yourself? Yeah, not bad. Um, spend the morning browsing exercise bikes on Amazon. So I've reached that point. <laughs> I can't get fitness equipment anywhere. Been a oh, nightmare. It's absolute nightmare. I mean, everything's sold out. So yeah, you know, it's get your daily walk in, but that's only what three, four miles. So mm. well, that's it. You start running it. <sighs> daily run. I'm a walker, not a runner. I'm a lover, not a fighter. But um. Yeah, well, uh, we'll leave the fitness talk to one side because I know you could go on for hours. Um, <laughs> and and what the pod- podcast today is is basically looking at one of your favourite games. Mm. Uh, it's a series that we started last week, the week before, with Simon. Yeah, uh, he he had Wales South Africa in nineteen ninety nine. Yours is a little bit different, um, mm. but different reasons and a slightly different performance from Wales. Yeah, so um, I was I was seven when Wales played South Africa in 1999. So I think my games are going to be a bit different to Simon's and, and Andy's and, and our colleagues. Um, yeah, a little bit more recent. My first one is the uh, the quarterfinal in the 2019 World Cup, Wales against France in Oita. Um, Wales winning in the end, uh, 20 points to 19. Um, but it doesn't really begin um, tell the story uh, of the week and. You know, the game in general, obviously, was, I was out in Japan. It was sort of my first World Cup fully covering Wales. I was around in 2015, but only didn't, didn't really play a main part in our coverage of that tournament. Um, so to be sent out to Japan as, as the Western Wales rugby correspondent was a big deal. Um, and yeah, Wales, Wales took us on a hell of a journey in that tournament. And, and I think that, that quarterfinal probably sums up everything about Welsh rugby. It had a bit of everything. Um, and the week leading up to it was exactly the same. It was, uh, you know, it was one of the most memorable weeks of uh, my career, certainly so far. So let's let's start then that week before, because obviously the week before was eventful for many reasons. One of which was the fact that we were coming off the back of Typhoon Agibus. So mm. France hadn't even played their last pool stage yeah. game. Obviously Wales had. Mm. Yeah, I think France had had almost, if not exactly, two weeks off. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, and, and I applied this to England as well, because um, obviously they had a big break as well with their games being affected. Um, I thought that the teams that had to complete their group stage matches would be in a better position 
um, than the teams that didn't moving into the knockout stages because I felt like having two weeks off in a major tournament like that was too long because I think you lose your sort of game sharpness. You become, you know, you're not quite battle hardened. You sort of lose that that you've built up over the first few rounds. So I thought it would, I thought it would have done Wales some good actually to be going into that the knockout stages, you know, with consistent games. Um, but you know, I got to hold my hands up on that one. If you look at the way the tournament panned out in the end, I got that totally wrong. Um, you know, it was the total opposite. The teams that had the bigger breaks um, and, and actually had their games uh, cancelled because of the typhoon, I think actually benefited far yeah. more than, than the teams that had to play. And then for Wales, obviously they had to complete their, their pool stage fixtures, mm. which, you know, at the time we didn't think much of, but it, it led us down sort of the path of some worrying days leading up to that France game and it came to injuries, didn't it? It did, mate, yeah. So, um, you know, the Uruguay game, the last game, they made 13 changes to the starting 15. The only two players were Hadley Parks and Josh Adams, um, who, who actually played that game and then obviously played the following week as well. Uh, Parks was pretty banged up, um, had a shoulder knock and broken a bone in his hand at the start of the tournament. Adams got the dead leg against Fiji and then played with it very heavily strapped up against Uruguay. So there's two concerns. The main concerns, though, were obviously with, with um, Jonathan Davis. But first of all, Dan Bigger um, suffered a nasty concussion trying to tackle Samu Karevi uh, in Tokyo in the Australia win. Um, and then obviously collided with Liam Williams um, in the Fiji win and suffered another concussion. Um, now, obviously, there were alarm bells ringing across the board there, uh, given the way the sport handles concussions these days, you know, there are no risks taken with players. Um, it's a very serious subject. Um, but I, I, I remember right at the start of the week, um, there was an article published in the French press, which was a bit of a common piece, uh, basically insisting there was no way that Dan Bigger could play in the match. Um, and they basically accused Wales of, of launching a sort of media campaign after the Uruguay game, which sort of sowed the seeds for them to then name Dan Bigger in the starting lineup against France in, in a sort of four or five days' time. Um, I didn't really like the insinuation of that piece. Um, I didn't really like the fact that it felt like they were accusing Wales of uh, some dirty tricks. Um, you know, having knowing the people involved in that, I, you know, I could guarantee that there's no way those doctors and medics in the Wales squad would take risks with players, and I knew that at the time. You know, Prav Mathema has been quite vocal in the past um, when it comes to concussions. You know, he's championed the WIU's uh, recognise and remove campaigns as well at all levels of the game. So, you know, I knew they would be doing everything by the book, um, but it just sort of, that just sort of set the tone a little bit for the week. There was a real edge all of a sudden. Um, you know, Wales were suddenly playing against opposition they were very familiar with. A lot of history between Wales and France, you know, only a couple of months prior to that game, Wales had sort of, you know, come back from the dead in in Paris, um, 16-0 down at half time there. So, you know, it's it sort of, and there were a lot of French journalists out there as well. It's probably the most heavily reported team, uh, anecdotally. You know, there were so many French journalists out there. Um, and they just started to get a little bit niggly that early on in the week. And, and that set the tone. Um, you know, as we later, later learned, you know, Bigger played, got through the game and had seen an independent specialist to sort of verify that he was okay to, to participate. Um, 
but that didn't mean that it that it was a non a non subject throughout the week. It it came up in every press conference, um, and then as you touched on, there yeah. was there was another injury as well. But going back to the, the bigger stuff, that was a bit of a. I think that the chip on the sort of the collective French shoulder probably stemmed back to comments that of all people, Sam Warburton made before the World Cup. Yeah. Because he, yeah, he's right. sort of spoken about how, you know, in, in France, maybe they don't treat concussion as well as other countries. And that seemed to be something that stuck, sort of stuck yeah. with them, didn't it? Yeah, I think that that's what sparked um, the comments that came later from the fr- actual French camp uh, later in the week. You know, they, they pointed out, um, you know, we, I remember having to be particularly careful with the translation of the quotes with this piece. But, uh, you know, I remember the French camp saying that if Bigger was French, he would not play the game. Um, which I think is more to do with the concussion protocols in the top four, in the top fourteen. Um, I can't remember what they are exactly off the top of my head, but I think if you had two concussions in in the sort of window or the space of time that Bigger did, it resulted in a sort of automatic removal from play. Um, now, obviously, in the, in the World Cup, that didn't take place with Bigger, and there, there are no protocols to say that in, in the World Cup. Um, but it, it was definitely it was brought up a lot, and it was you know Sam's comments. Um, were brought up that week. I think you know, in his defence, he's he's just sort of speaking as he finds and and you know, given his experiences of what he saw in in his time in the game, and you know, I take his word on it. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a, the start to the week was definitely quite spicy. And as you say, there was another injury, which was John Davis. Yeah, that one rumbled on, didn't it? Oh, it was. It was huge as well. You know, John Davis is probably behind Alan Wynn, the most important player in the side. Um, you know, it, it became so such a big deal that we started joking amongst ourselves in the press that that it was becoming like David Beckham's metatarsal before the 2002 Football World Cup. Um, you know, I was waking up to texts every morning from back home, not just from the office, but from friends as well, you know, asking what what's happening with Jonathan Davis? What's the latest? Is he going to be fit? Um, you know, after that knee injury suffered against Fiji. Um, I think based on what we saw after that Fiji game, we we all knew that if, if he ever made the field, he was not going to be 100% fit, um, nowhere near it. And when he did actually play um, against South Africa, he admitted to us before the game that he wasn't 100% fit. Um, but yeah, so he was, all week it was positive. You know, the players were in training. Um, we were going up to watch the open training sessions. Um, Traipsing right up into the hills in Bethel. I'll never forget it. It was a hell of a work. We were up there every day, though, and um, watching. You get 15 minutes of access to training in the World Cup. Um, but it's just an exercise for broadcasters. The players come out, they do a, a warm-up, a few stretches, uh, and that's the end of it. Uh, all week, Jonathan Davis was on the far side of the field, as far away from the journalists as he could get. Um, you know, going through his usual things, testing the ligaments in the knee out, apparently, based on what. I can see with no medical expertise, but that's what I assumed he was doing. Um, and then uh, the day, the day of the captain's run. So he was named to start in the in the side. The day of the captain's run came, and again we went up to the me and a few other journalists went up to the captain's run. Um, and just before we were ushered away from the the training pitch, I saw um, me and one of the other journalists saw Jonathan Davis call Pravmathema, the the head doctor, over. They seemed to have a little conversation for about two minutes. Um, and then Prav and Jonathan Davis walked off the training field towards the tent on the far side where all their boots and nutritional stuff, when, you know, all their bits yeah. and bobs were. 
He walked past Warren Gatland, uh, the two of them did, and I saw Jonathan Davis. Short to this day, I saw him shake his head. Um, straight away, we checked out. You know, I said to, uh, I checked out with WRU. You know, what have we just seen there? That that didn't look great. We were told at the time that he was being taken away um, to get extra volume into his legs. Um, that the players would have to do a certain amount of training before a match um, to make sure they were ready to play. Which, you know, on the face of it, is a fair enough answer. I didn't have any concrete evidence to suggest anything different. Um, so you just take it at its face value. But, you know, as we, as we later learned, um, you know, I don't know to this day whether I saw Jonathan Davis tell Warren Gatland he couldn't play the following day. Um, but we later learned that he did tweak his knee in the, in the captain's run. So, you know, whether we saw it or not remains to be seen. But, he, you know, he didn't make the start line. No, he didn't. Um, I seem to remember, he, you know, he pulled out very shortly before kickoff. I seem to remember I'd just got out of bed. <laughs> so that tells you it was pretty close to kickoff. Yeah. So I was pushing it back in the, in, in the World Cup. This is sort of how the shortest amount of time I could leave it to go into the office for games. So it must have been pretty soon. Yeah. And then onto the game itself, obviously Owen Watkins stepped into the centre. But... I mean, for Wales, it was a nightmare start, wasn't it? Yeah, so Wales left it, like I said, as late as they could to announce it. That's not uncommon, like to give the, the opposition team as little chance as possible to prepare for somebody different. Um, I thought, you know, it was a huge challenge for Owen Watkins, the biggest game of his career by far. Um, and on a separate note, I thought he played really well that night. Um, you know, probably one of his better performances in a Wales shirt, opposite Vakatawa, who was in unbelievable form in that tournament. Um, I don't think Owen Watkins made a mistake all game, really. Um, but yeah, the the game itself started horrendously for Wales. Um, you know, two early tries for France. Wales were twelve nil down. Um, I seem to remember it could have been a lot worse as well. But the defensive interventions from George North and Josh Adams on separate occasions, and it was just uh, you know, especially after the way the Fiji game had gone as well. You know, they they started that game terribly. Um, and you just thought there's no way they can do it again. You know, we saw them do it in Paris, come back from the dead. Yep. Now, in many ways, against a better side, you know, Fiji should have finished Wales off um, a couple of weeks before. And I just thought, you know, they're 12 nil down again. They're being totally outplayed. There's, there's absolutely no way back for a third time. Um, you know, but then um, then came the, the big hit from Jake Ball on, on Girardo dislodge the ball. Aaron Wainwright picks it up and runs in a try literally out of nothing. Um, and suddenly Wales are building back into the game and, and you're thinking, Oof, you know, maybe they can. You know, they, they, they weren't steaming back into the game, but they sort oh. of, they built, you know, they sort of calmed down a little bit. They got a foothold in the game. And um, it was early enough, wasn't it? It was only mm. what, 12 minutes in the Wainwright scored. Yeah, it so. was. You're right. Yeah. It was it was still early enough for anything to happen. Yeah, absolutely, and I suppose that's the blessing of, of conceding the tries that that quickly is is at least they had plenty of time to to put it right. And you know, up to that point, even though I had my doubts, Wales had done nothing really to deserve my doubt. If that makes sense, you know, they they'd started poorly in games on that winning run that Wales went on before the World Cup, but they always seemed to find a way out of it, and they always seemed to find a way to win. But I just thought. There's only so many times you can pull 
rabbits out of a hat before the hat's empty. Um, and you know, I thought I thought this was it. I think a lot of people did. Um, obviously, Wales did sort of come back after those two quick tries, but then I think it was around the half hour mark. Um, <laughs> was it Ross Moriarty came on and yeah, yeah, made, made yeah, an instant it impact. Yeah, so Wales had obviously built into the game quite, you know, got a foothold as we touched on. Um, Josh Navidi suffered a hamstring injury then um, that ended his tournament. Uh, and yeah, Ross Moriarty came on. Now, this had probably been a couple of weeks in the making, I think, because, you know, he, he lost his place, which was a bit of a surprise, really, um, at the start of the tournament to Aaron Wainwright uh, in the starting back row and basically didn't get it back. You know, you'd hear it's, it's not the sort of thing that would sit well with a character like Ross Moriarty. You know, he's fired up. Um, earlier in the tournament, we'd heard of him being at the heart of a bit of blood spilt in Wales training, um, you know, which, which didn't come as a major surprise to too many. Um, and he was, he was thrown into the quarterfinal early on. This was his chance, and, and he was, well, he was too excited, wasn't he? You know, the blood was running far too hot. Um, and he's, um, he's basically clotheslined Gail Fiku within a minute of coming onto the field. Um, and as soon as you see the incident, it's one of those where you think it's definitely a yellow. And depending on which referee you get, it could quite possibly be a red. Um, I, won't, I, you know, I, can't say, I can't repeat what Moriarty said after the game, um, but suffice to say he was um, pretty nervous when um, Jacko Piper was looking over it with his TMO. Um, and he was just basically waiting to figure out which colour the card was going to be. Um, so, you know, it was nervy moments. He got a yellow, um, which was not terminal, as we later, you know, discovered. Um, but it set Wales back massively. Like we said, they just built back into the game, and now they're down to 14 men. Um, and Vakatawa scores before half-time, and suddenly you're back to nine points down again. Indeed. Like, like you said, though, Paris, what were they down in Paris at halftime? 16-0 down in Paris. So not exactly a lost cause, was it? But what, what were you thinking at the, um, at the halftime, Mark? So obviously in, in Paris, you were in Paris for us. Mm. You knew that had Wales lost that night, the Six Nations doesn't finish for you. You still go to Rome the next week. Yeah. But had Wales lost then, you're probably on the next plane out of Japan. Yeah, exactly, mate. So like we, my first thought was that this is going to be a total disaster. Um, you know, contrary to what some people might believe, you know, as a journalist in the national newspaper of Wales, you know, we like to see the Wales football team, rugby team, the Welsh professional, you know, clubs all succeed. It makes our job a lot easier. Um, people want to read about wins. People want to write about wins. I was re I was worried that. The, the fallout from the game was going to be really ugly um, because of the way the game was going. They were being out, like I said, they'd being outplayed massively. Um, and yeah, I thought I was going home. Um, I thought Wales were going home. I thought I was following them. You know, it didn't really, it, it did sort of have implications for my travel plans, but one way or another, I had to get back up to Tokyo. And um, it just, you know, it was just a case of, do I go, go straight to the airport or am I going to a hotel? Because obviously, you know, if Wales get to the semi-final, they're there for another two weeks, whatever happens then, because they've got that bronze medal match, which they obviously end up in. Um, so I knew I was either going home then or it was going to be another two weeks in Japan. Um, but yeah, and, and Warren Gatland also admitted after the game that at halftime, 
you know, he was heading down from the coach's box to the dressing room thinking he was going home as well. Um, it was difficult to envisage anything else. And then Sebastian Vahima happened. The man who, you know, fought, made Media Wales fork out for two more weeks worth of hotels for you. Oh, honestly, mate. I, I mean, it's still, I still can't get my head around it now. Um, I really can't. You know, it's not, it's just stupid beyond, beyond the sort of realms of human comprehension. What? He's, he's just elbowed Aaron Wayne right in the jaw. I can't, I still can't get my head around it. You know, what? Why? Why would he do it? You know, they, France were cruising, like you said, you know, nine point lead on their way to the semi final, about to do a job on Wales, a team that they hadn't, that they'd lost to seven out of the last eight times they played each other. Um, you know, this was finally going to be different. Let's not forget Var Mahina was the man who threw the interception to George North yep. in Paris. So, you know, and he was got history. Got history, yeah, exactly. Captain in Paris without even knowing it. So, you know, and that just gave Wales a lifeline, didn't it? Um, yeah. Such a, such a bizarre incident, really. You know, everybody in the stadium missed it. And then, it sh- then there was a replay shown on the big screen and it was like, that's a Stonewall red card. I can't see what else he can give. And, you know, as we know, Piper produced the red and it totally spun. Well, it should have spun the game on its head, but it perhaps didn't really have the impact that the people in red jerseys certainly would be hoping for. It took Piper a long time to, to blow his whistle, didn't it? Because I think, obviously, he had his arm around Wainwright's neck for, for quite a while, and then he threw the elbow. Mm. And then I think the sort of the mall span out, and France went down, looked to go down the blind side, and then Piper brought it back for the arm round. I, don't, so, I think he missed it. I, th- I, I think his TMO must have alerted him to it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I remember being sat next to Sarah Mockford um, of Rugby World, and I think she saw it in real time. Um, but I totally missed it. And um, when the replay showed up again, um, you know, Sarah was right. You know, just elbowed Wainwright smack in the jaw for, for no apparent reason. You know, it's made worse by the fact that Wainwright's sort of got his arms trapped by his side, appears to be pretty, uh, pretty defenseless. And he's had a, like you said, he's had a go at his neck and then just cracked yeah. the elbow into his jaw. And Wainwright must have a hell of a jaw on him because he didn't come off. So. I mean, the slow-mo makes it look worse because his, his jaws sort of moved about four inches to the right and his hair stood still. Yeah, it's, it, yeah it, was, it was pretty aggressive. It was, you know, it's, it's, it's up there with one of the, the strangest, most bizarre incidents of, or acts of stupidity I've ever seen on a rugby field. And it cost France a, a place in the World Cup sem- semi-final. Let's make no bones about it. And yet, despite all that, we still have to wait till... What, the 72nd, 73rd minute for Wales to, to get back in front or to get yeah, out in front for the first time? Well, this is what I meant when I touched on it just now and said it didn't perhaps have the impact that many people would have hoped in, in Wales. Because it, even when they were down to 14 men, France still seemed to be the stronger of the two sides. Um, it reminded me a lot of when Wales played Australia in the 2015 World Cup and Australia went down to 13 men and Wales still couldn't score. Um, they just looked like they, they couldn't stretch France enough. Um, France, at every turn, France were, were able to push Wales back. And like I said, if anything, they, they became stronger as the game went on. I remember Vakatawa charging into the Welsh 22 and taking Dan Bigger with him. 
I just remember watching it thinking, this, you know, if, if you told somebody who was just coming into the ground that one of these two teams is, is a man down, you know, without even counting the players, you would have thought Wales were struggling. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, as, as you touched on, Wales grew into they, they seemed to go into their shells a little bit. Um, they kept the ball tight. There was a clear message coming from the sidelines, though, that, that they were going to attack France in the tight where they were a man down, which makes a bit of sense when you think about it. They've lost the second row. Um, so, you know, there's not going to be spaces out wide necessarily because, you know, you've still got a full back line there. So Wales were taking France on in the tight, and it looked like they'd, they'd sort of panicked and gone into their shells, but it was a tactical decision. Um, they were going to try and bat their way through Wales, uh, through France, sorry. Um, but it looked like it was failing, um, and it looked like it was going to be a sort of tactical decision that was going to haunt the coaches and the players for the rest of their careers. Well, was the story of this World Cup was how Warren Gatland was continually handicapped tactically by injuries. Because you think, not to say they were expansive in the Six Nations, but he had a, he had a nice, varied game plan with Anscombe at 10 and with the wingers. Maybe not being overly involved in the game but when they were involved it was accurate and they got wide mm. to sort of get around the fact that Wales lacked big ball carriers but by the time the World Cup came around there was just so many injuries the offload game was just dropped because they just couldn't risk it and it just went back to being pure Warren Gatland playing the numbers playing the odds yeah well, wasn't it uh- after the after the tournament, I, I sat down with Gatlin in the in the Hilton in Cardiff, and he told me that that losing Gareth Anscombe before the tournament was the first time in his entire career with Wales where he felt like they'd lost a the player they couldn't replace. Um, and that took me back a little bit. That, that's a, that's that's a big statement. Um, but when you think about it, like you touched on there, in that Six Nations, they'd found a formula that was winning them games, and they actually started playing some really good rugby. You know, they had Anscombe there from the start who had become, you know, not just this expansive fly-half, but a fly-half who could manage games as well. Um, so he was putting Wales into winning positions. And then Dan Bigger was coming on to finish things off. And it was working perfectly. And it, and it won them a grand slam. And obviously, they lost Anscombe in the warm-up uh, against England at Twickenham. Um, and it totally hamstrung them. And, you know, like Gatlin said, he, you know, they, they never, he never really replaced Anscombe, you know, they didn't have that formula where they had, you know, Patchell is a playmaker in the same way that Anscombe is a playmaker. Um, but you, your Gatland obviously wasn't comfortable starting with Patchell. Um, so it totally changed their approach to the, to the way they were going to play games. I suppose the reason that Wales came through this match, the reason that Wales got so far in the tournament when maybe as a side, they'd either peaked or been hampered by injuries was just pure doggedness. And I guess that's what would put it at the top of why it's a game that, you know, this isn't Wales, South Africa 99 when Wales dominate the the world champions. This is a game where pure doggedness gets a result where Wales shouldn't be winning. No, it was just the drama of it all as well. You know, it was sheer bloody mindedness. You know, I I was in awe of the way they won that game. Honestly, I was. You know, it, it was absolutely... It was difficult to watch at times because the collisions were massive. Players putting themselves on the line both sides. Um, 
know, Wales, like I said, they, they weren't spinning it wide at all. It was very direct, off nine and ten. The, you know, the, the contact area was ferocious. You know, it was literally, it was a case of France were building a wall and Wales were going to knock it down. They weren't going to go around it. And it was absolutely brutal. And obviously, as we said, you know, it came right down to the wire. Um, to the 77th minute, I think it was. Um, little old Thomas Williams, of all people, uh, ripping, ripping the ball free. Um, Tipperick, obviously, coming just short. And then, you know, who else but Moriarty, you know, talk about from zero to hero, um, picked it up and dotted it down, you know, a couple of inches in front of his nose. I think he face-planted the floor to make sure he got the ball down. Um, and even then, you know, there was drama with, you know, has the rip gone forward? And then in the middle of it all, you're thinking to yourself, you know, it's a, as a journalist, Cracky, what is the law on this? You know, is it a knock-on? Is it a forward pass? Can you rip the ball? Can the ball be ripped out and go forward and still be okay? You know, you know, has it even gone forward? It, it was absolute chaos. Um, you know, and obviously they looked at it so many times. All the while, Dan Bigger is stood there with his tea in his hand. Um, you know, it's not a difficult kick under normal circumstances, but it couldn't have been any further from normal circumstances. And he needed to nail it, obviously, to put Wales in front by a point, um, which he did with <laughs> with a sort of alarming level of nonchalance as well. Um, but yeah, put Wales in front and then they had to hold on for two minutes. I remember, um, I remember actually for that final two minutes, part of my remit out there was to sort of do the colour pieces from the games and maybe things that were, you know, put across things that weren't being seen on television. Um, and I remember for the last two minutes just watching the bench um, and seeing what was going on down there, and it was total chaos. You know, you had people pacing, the bodies for the players were just strewn over the chairs, um, totally knackered. Um, Paul Stridgen, fitness coach, was bouncing around like a cat on a hot tin roof. Um, you know, Alan Phillips, the team manager, had seen it all before, was just sat there leaning back in his chair at his team manager's desk. It, it was unbelievable to watch. And then, obviously, there was a scrum um, on the far side um, that Wales won a penalty from. That was a front row of, was it, Dylan Lewis, Elliot D, and Reese Carey, by the way. Um, very young front row, won a penalty on the far side. Uh, bigger kick to the to touch. Um, Elliot D found Adam Beard at the line out, uh, and Wales just saw the game out. Great images of that game as well. Um, I remember watching Dan Bigger boot the ball as far as he could into the stand and, and give it the big double fist bump, a bit like he did at Twickenham in 2015 um, to the stands. And you know, Wales lived remarkably to fight another day. It was you know. But all the way up until that 77th minute, it was just, you couldn't shake the feeling that this just wasn't going to be Wales's day. Um, and out of the fire, you know, they won it. And I guess that's why then that this is one of the games you've chosen as, as the best game that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, if, they, if, if they'd lost it, it probably wouldn't have been. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just for the, you know, the, the whole occasion, um, the build-up in the week, you know, Wales... You know, you you all you always fancied Wales to win it in the build-up, but you know, it my confidence levels dropped significantly when Jonathan Davis was ruled out. Um, that's nothing against Owen Watkin, but he's just not Jonathan Davis. 
Um, that was a big loss, but you know that added to it as well. You know they overcame that. Owen Watkins, as I said, played very well um, in that game. Um, you know the type five was an unbelievable shift from those guys because, as I said, you know the game plan just became we're going to run straight and we're going to run hard and hopefully run over the top of France, um, and that's not easy to do. Um, and I think that sort of that style of rugby caught up with them in the end. Uh, probably did for their chances, but you know, on this occasion, to go, and I think it's like you said as well. It's the sort of jeopardy of it all. We, they were either going to Yokohama or they were going to Heathrow. You've, you know, they had from when Varmahina went off. I think it was half hour to totally change the course of their tournament. Um, and you know, for all the the wins in the group stages and you know how well they played. You know, even that Australia win, I, I never thought that was as big a game as people made out because it didn't matter necessarily who lost. You always thought Wales and Australia were going to be the two teams to go through. It only really meant which side of the draw were they going to be on. Um, but this was obviously the first knockout game and and it was it was winner takes all. It was it was everything. And, and Wales somehow, um, as they had done a number of times in the sort of 18 months before that, managed to pull one out of the fire. There we go. I think that's a nice little trip down memory lane. I look forward to hearing what the other two games are. <laughs> yeah, there was a, there was a lot of um, lot of incident in that one. Um, but yeah, there's a couple more good ones up my sleeve. The, uh, the listeners are going to have to tune in again uh, whenever you decide to have me on next on on your rotor. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, but yeah, it's a pretty posh yeah, looking rotor. It's all colour coded. Yeah, exactly. But like I said, they're not probably not going to be a, as far down memory lane as Simon and Andy's, but. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, there'd be some good ones in there. Yeah, still still got colour footage of games, which is the nice thing when you look back on um, There we go. That's it for today's podcast. I'll let Matt get back to uh, being consigned to the bedroom and I'll get back to looking up fitness equipment on the internet. Thanks for listening. <laughs>